Welcome to episode 43 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to be talking about careers, your career as an author, and how that is different from your writing. Yeah, so this has a little bit been on my mind because, you know, I have a book that's coming out next year, and I'm also writing a book under contract. And we did touch on a little bit of this, I think, in a previous podcast episode where we talked about brand Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that necessarily means. But we thought we this would be a useful segment or a useful series to have about author career, like the career part of being an author, not just the artist part of being a writer. Mm-hmm. Because like any other career, really, any other field that you choose to go into and have a career, um, you kind of have to be a little bit strategic about it at times. Um, that sometimes seems at odds with this notion that writing is an art. And we talked about this too, and when we talk about publishing, publishing is a business. And what you as an author, so there's you as an author, and then there is you as a writer. And while there's overlap on those two personas, they're kind of different things. And I think people should approach being an author with like a capital A differently than being a writer, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess, let's see, let's start with, let, let's start with the concept of a career. So hopefully this is a little bit more for us, not established writers, but maybe writers who are agented or on submission or have a book deal already, not somebody who is a, who is at the aspiring level because what uh, the author career is like once you already have books written and once you're taking those professional steps, um, you start to approach this differently than somebody who is writing for the joy of it and is aspiring to be published one day. It's kind of kind of a different mentality actually. Mm-hmm. Because once you start stepping into the professional pool, essentially, of being a published writer, you start to have to think about like where you are in the market, you know, what trajectory you want your books to have. And for a lot of us who are creative types, this is really kind of hard for us. Like we don't want to think about it, right? We just want to, to write our books and push them out into the world and have somebody else deal with all of that because that's really hard. Um, but that's, that isn't the case these days. And I think the most successful authors are savvy about their career. And finding the intersection between business and passion is hard in, in any, any field, really. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be law. It could be medicine. It could be you know, business, like finance or something, like finding the intersection between career and passion is difficult. And for successful, serious authors, 
that balancing act, I think, is crucial. So, we talked about brand the last time. Mm -hmm. So, your career trajectory kind of differs a little bit depending on what category or genre you write in. Um, But if you think of yourself, author, as being separate from you as a person and as a writer, what brand or what image or what you want to be associated with your name is something that takes a little bit of consideration once you've written your first book. Mm-hmm. It might be a little bit different if you have like a multi-book contract that's like, you know, a trilogy or like however many books in a series. But generally what helps authors starting out their careers is consistency. Like consistency of voice, of genre, of, uh, I'm trying to think of what else, like basically just like the it's same. It's that different. je ne sais quoi, it's that thing that, you know, that you recognize everything as being of a piece, their books and their social media and their online presence and everything, while not identical, fits together and makes sense together so that when you step back and view it as a whole, you're like, oh yes, I, I see how that's all connected or done by the same person. Right, because I wanted to actually talk about pen names in this section Mm -hmm. and the reasons people take pen names. So there's there's kind of some personal reasons. Like I know authors who've taken pen names because they want to protect their legal selves Mm -hmm. um, and and keep that separate from their author selves because it makes it harder to, to Google them. Like I know J.K. Rowling... Legal name is actually not J.K. Rowling, but J.K. Rowling is what she is known by. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Cassandra Clare is also a pen name. That's, you know, that's her author name, but not her legal name. Um, So there are kind of private reasons, like privacy reasons that people choose to take pen names. But other reasons people choose to take pen names is for career purposes. Mm -hmm. So Nora Roberts is a pretty good example. Nora Roberts, when when you say the name Nora Roberts, the thing that comes to everyone's mind first is romance, romance novels. But did you know that Nora Roberts has a pen name, J.D. Robb? J.D. Robb, yep. And a lot of people do know this, but you know, when when you think of a J.D. Robb novel, and those are kind of more, I think, romantic suspense. Like mm-hmm. the Nora Roberts brand, the Nora Roberts author brand is, I think, more contemporary, not quite so genre, you know. Um, whereas J.D. Robb's books are follow, I think, one couple actually. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, throughout the entire series, so that's a that's an example of why she took a pen name to differentiate her two types of books, and that that's. Often, why or the other reason people take pen names is when their career kind of bombs, <laughs> when their when their books don't do well, and it's really hard to start up again after your previous books haven't done well. You take a pen name and and basically start and, over, right? As a, they launch you as a debut author, even though you've had other books published because it's a new name. And J.K. Rowling too; she writes the. Um, the what mysteries are they called? Oh, the, the Robert- Cormoran Strike. Yes, 
Mm-hmm. Those are all under a pen name. Robert Galbraith, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because we associate J.K. Rowling with Harry Potter, but the, the Robert Galbraith books have a very different feel, very different tone, and a completely different audience. So a Robert Galbraith novel is totally different, and you expect different things from that author than you do from J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. Um and I think to some extent that's kind of why I think a casual vacancy wasn't nearly as successful as the other two. Yeah. Cuz it's sort of an outlier. And that's kind of that's the thing about career, right? You don't want an outlier. Cuz then you kind of have to explain the outlier. So if you look at a resume and you know and you're a young person just out of college and you're applying for jobs, right? And you want a whole bunch of jobs on your resume that kind of you can tailor or gear towards what you eventually want to be. You know, so for example, we'll take publishing. You know, if you do either like a public relations or publicity or communications type of internships, those are all really useful for future jobs in publishing. And then hopefully if you get into publishing, then, you know, all of your jobs make sense. Like you start out as a literary assistant and then you become, you know, an associate agent and then you become, you know, a literary agent, or you can kind of, you know, you start as a literary assistant and then you become assistant to the foreign rights person. And then you become the director of foreign rights. Like that's a career trajectory that makes sense. But say then you are a literary assistant and then you become an associate agent and then for like two or three years you are a chef and then you come back into publishing it's kind of then you're sort of like what was that like brief period of time you were a chef about can you explain that Mm -hmm. it's a little (laughs) bit like that (laughs) when you when you think about your future output in terms of books so that's kind of why i think the casual vacancy Nobody knew what to expect of that book. I think that was the other problem because we we had seven books from her already that were one character. We followed him closely and his entire story and there was magic and whimsy. And then she comes out with this book that's none of those things. <laughs> and nobody really knew what to expect. Um, and I know for the, the Cormoran Strike books, she, because, you know, I think J.K. Rowling has always been drawn to mystery, like, because a lot of the early Harry Potter books are basically mysteries in a middle, in a middle grade fantasy package. And I think she wanted to be able to write without the pressure of being J.K. Rowling, essentially. Um, she didn't need the money, she just did it because she wanted to write, and I believe all the proceeds from those books actually goes to a charity for veterans. Um, but, but like, she has a very clear idea of what kind of books Robert Galbraith writes, whereas the J.K. Rowling name is basically going to be only forever associated with Harry Potter. So the casual vacancy being the outlier is kind of like, well, (laughs) that'll be a strange footnote in history. (laughs) I mean, let's think about it this way. If J.K. Rowling to write another book under the name J.K. Rowling that's not Harry Potter related, what would you expect that author to produce? I would expect it to be a middle grade or a YA. I would expect it to be the same audience, essentially, because Casual Vacancy was definitely an adult audience as well as being contemporary and everything else. So I would have expected another middle grade or YA um and I, I would have expected something 
whimsical. I don't know if I would have expected fantasy necessarily, but I think a lot of middle grades, just by nature of being middle grades, are whimsical. And so that's kind of what I would have expected if I was being told that J.K. Rowling was going to write another book under that name. And so The Casual Vacancy, I think, really just came across as something completely different. Yeah, I think a lot of people bought it simply because it was J.K. Rowling, but didn't know what to expect from that. I mean, if I were to think what of what J.K. Rowling would write next if it weren't for Harry Potter, I agree with Kelly. It's either going to be for children, um, or if it's not for children, maybe she would con- continue in the fantasy vein and write maybe maybe not like a seven-book series, but, you know, maybe right. an adult standalone, but it's it's got fantasy elements or something. That is what I would expect from the author of the Harry Potter novels. And that's kind of what we mean by consistency as well. You know, we'll take another person who has kind of an like established track, John Green. John Green has four contemporary novels, contemporary YA novels. From him, I would not be surprised if he wrote an adult literary novel. That seems to be consistent with his brand. Mm-hmm. But if he were to come back and said, I wrote, a, you know, a, like a fantasy novel, I'd kind of be like, interesting. <laughs> I don't know what a fantasy novel by John Green would be like. Yeah. And that's what makes it kind of difficult. Now, obviously, when you are first starting out in your author career, you don't want to consciously think about this. You don't want to think, I mean, you can. I think if you want to be that mercenary and be like, well, this is my track. This is what I'm going to do. You can. I don't think the majority of us think like that, though. I think that we work on projects that move us, that we like, that, you know, we are called to at the time. So, but it is something that you should possibly keep in the back of your mind. You know, you've got all these story ideas and then you think logically, based on my output thus far, what makes sense for the next book from me, from author me, what makes the most sense. And if you have something that is wildly different, maybe that's when you approach your agent and say, hey, I've got this book idea and I want to write it, but maybe you and your agent discuss submitting it under a pen name. And a pen name, of course, can be open secrets. Yeah. But it's, you know, but it's just, it's creating clear categories or distinctions between, you know, like we said with Nora Roberts and J.D. Robb, everyone knows that J.D. Robb Mm -hmm. is Nora Roberts. I'd be very surprised to hear that we've spoiled that for any of our listeners. (laughs) You know, that is, that is, I think it might even say like on some of the like Nora Nora Roberts writing as J.D. Robb. Right, right. (laughs) I think it's very clear, but because it is a clear division of brand, you know what to expect and it's it's divided enough and separate enough that it makes sense. So we're not saying you have to completely, you know, shroud yourself in secrecy and and no one can know, but that if you do something like that, you might want to consider making it a clear different persona or section of your brand. And that's something too that your agent like JJ said really will be able to help you with. One of the great things about agents is that they are really excellent for things like career trajectory planning. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of experience in this and they know 
you know, what maybe some of the different pathways that your career can take. And so that's a really great conversation to have with them. We're not trying to convince everyone that you can only write one kind of thing and have to pigeonhole yourself forever. And if you want to do anything else, you need a whole secret identity. Like that's not what we're saying. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the author Victoria Schwab, she writes across actually multiple categories. She writes middle grade, she writes young adult, and she writes adult. The thing that is consistent across all of her categories is that she writes in fantasy. She writes fantasy novels. But her adult books are different from her middle grade books and are different from her YA books. And she actually writes her adult books under the name V.E. Schwab. So she writes her children's under Victoria Schwab and her adult stuff under V.E. Schwab. And everyone knows that this is the same woman, right? The same author, the same writer. Um, but it knowing if you, when you see the name V.E. Schwab, you know, okay, this is her adult stuff. So I expect something a little bit different from her adult, adult work. And then you see the name Victoria Schwab and you expect something slightly different. Really, career is kind of managing audience expectations is kind of really what it is. And of course, that's tricky. And how does that affect your writing? And how should that affect your writing? I am a big proponent of keeping your public and private lives separate. And I tend to think of it as being very useful of having an author persona to inhabit. And we mentioned this again in our branding podcast about like old Hollywood and how they the studios had crafted these images for their stars to and personas for the stars to inhabit. I think it is useful for authors to do that as well. I mean, again, it does not have to be so calculated. Basically, your author persona is your the highlights reel of your personality, I guess, if you want to put it mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. Um, but keeping a part of yourself that's just you and the you know the pe- your intimate colleagues and and friends know, I think that's crucial to keeping yourself sane and mm-hmm. not getting caught up in the whole madness that is the publishing business because things can change on a whim in publishing and what worked years ago may not work tomorrow. Yeah. I think there's this thing, especially people who were either part of the live journal revolution or came after it where people equate this kind of like confessional bare all online persona with authenticity and think you're not really being authentic unless you're bearing, you know, every last scrap of yourself. And I, I don't think that's true. I think that author social media, that is, um, a persona that JJ is talking about that is, you know, the, your highlights real. I think that's authentic. I think if your Twitter is about, you know, posting pictures of your cat and talking about your favorite TV show and, you know, whatever other, like whatever highlight reels you talk about on your Twitter, that's all still stuff that you genuinely like. That's genuinely part of you. 
but you're not necessarily airing everything, you know? And I think that that's something that is useful for all people <laughs> in yes. terms of their social media use, but also, and in real you life, know, I think, <laughs> yeah. And like, but especially for, um, especially for authors or for people who are trying to reach a particular audience, because, you know, again, I do another podcast about parenting and I sat down with my husband and had very clear discussions about what are the kinds of things that I'm going to talk about on this podcast about my child and myself and my husband and what are the things that we're going to keep private. And it's not that I feel like I'm lying because I'm not. I'm telling true stories. I'm talking about real experiences, but they are filtered. There are things that I reserve only for myself. And I think that's important for your own personal sanity and... um you know, I, I think that you do, you do want to separate your author, your author self, capital A from the person that you are. Yeah. I think it keeps you sane, but it also, I think separating your writing from being an author is I think also crucial because conflating yourself with your work this isn't any career. This is not just writing. You know, if you define yourself by your career and your job, sometimes that can just cause, you know, boundary issues and, and you don't have time for anything else or anything that you keep to yourself. And especially for creative people, while your books and your what you produce creatively are an extension of you, they are not you. And I think that distinction is crucial to maintain because if you are unable to separate yourself from your writing and from your work, anytime you get rejected, anytime you get a bad review, anytime something negative happens, it will really negatively impact you as a person. And you don't have, you, you don't, you won't have any emotional space to spare to continue working on your, on your craft and on your art, because, and this is something I think a lot of writers will have to struggle with and deal with, you know, basically shutting out all the voices, right. And trying not to let those voices affect what you want to put out into the world. Ideally, what you put out into the world can be spun into your brand, right? Like you, you know, you work on what you want and you put it out in the world and it fits in with your brand, however your brand is coming to be, you know, the next logical book by the said person. Um, but like anytime you tie yourself emotionally to, to what goes out in the world, it's, it's, it's the thing about needing external validation. You know, you, if you don't have a sense of self without people telling you or, mm if your sense of self gets destroyed by criticism, mm -hmm. that's really the dangerous part. Yeah, it is. And I hear you. I feel all you people out there who just heard what JJ said and are like withering inside because that is me. I am miss external validation and it is very hard for me to hear criticism. Um, but this is also, you you might have those emotional experiences and that might be how you process things and that might be how you live your life and me too. And that's great. 
However, it is important that you do all that processing privately. You yes. don't, you don't do that on social media. You don't seek your external validation. You know, I need my external validation all the time. And I would go to my husband for that. I text JJ to help me with my works in progress. I do all my little stuff that I need to do to get my external validation. And I don't, I don't complain about negative feedback, which I get a lot of in daily life as we all do publicly. Um, you know, sometimes I do things and I put stuff out in the world and people don't like it and that gets back to me and I'm not going to confront that person and I'm not going to subtweet them and I'm not going to process that in public. I'll come home and I'll talk to my husband and pour a glass of wine and I'll be like, oh my God, so-and-so hates my thing and I can't believe it and it crushes me and I'll do all of that freaking out privately. Mm -hmm. Don't do that in public. Don't don't process that stuff out in the open where everyone can see it because it never, ever, ever ends well. If you're hurt by things that you read, then okay. And I think it's going to happen. And hopefully with each thing that happens, you get a thicker skin and you're able to separate yourself more and more. But I can understand how if you write your first book and you get a negative review or someone writes a blog post and they don't like it, that that can sting because you've poured so much of yourself into it, but you have to learn how to separate that. It's, I mean, I am not a parent, but what I've all, always said about your creative works is that, you know, like, like children are a part of you, but they are not you. <laughs> and at some, you know, your children are separate people out in the world. Yes, they came from you. They are genetically you in some part. But as they go out into the world and as they grow older and, you know, interact, they're their own person and you cannot control how the world receives them. You can hopefully shape and guide that, but you have, you don't have control over the entire world. So if somebody, you know, is critical of your child, it's not really a criticism of you as a human being necessarily. And there's nothing, you know, the best thing you can do is take that criticism and apply it in your next work, you know, if you think it's valid and it might not be, if if it's not valid, then just ignore it, you know, but if it's valid and you've sat with it and you think, you know what, that's right. I could do better then next time do better, but you can't, you can't sit behind everybody and look over their shoulder as they turn the pages in your book and explain to them, well, actually, I meant this. And actually, this isn't a problem because of this. And actually, if you just knew what I was thinking at the time, it would be fine. You can't do that. There's too many people in the world. There's too many copies of your book. You can't be every place at every time. You cannot do it. Your book will have a life beyond you. And you need to become comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, that that separation of... Author self and writer self is crucial, and I think that's the hardest thing for people to learn. You know, and it, 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 and I think that process comes in stages and in degrees. Because hopefully, before you become a published writer, you have critique partners or groups that you exchange writing with, and if they are good, they will be critical of your writing in 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 constructive ways, right? Hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously there's sometimes criticism that can just be 
personal and is not about the work and it's more about their issues and not actually your work. And, you know, and that takes some doing to kind of sift through that as well. Um, but, you know, hopefully leading up to publication, you have come to terms with rejection, with criticism, because it's not going to get any better once you have that book deal. And in fact, it will yeah, get worse. Built into the process. Rejection is just built right in from the get-go. Right. People are not going to like your book. People are going to be indifferent to your book. And But you know what? There are also people who are going to love it. So, you know, obviously don't let the negative criticism affect you as a person. But the other thing is don't let praise go to your head either. People who have a very strong sense of self and identity, I think, are able to weather the ups and downs of publishing better, I think. Because, like I said, opinions of people can turn on a dime. The market can shift like that. You know, there's so many things that can happen that are beyond your control. So if you have a strong sense of self, you can weather those changes and just say, okay, well, that that happened. That didn't work for me. So I'm going to try this that I like and keep going forward. Because I think the danger in listening too much to feedback, whether good or bad, is that it will stall you. Because, say your first book is extremely successful and people love it, then you may be trapped into, well, now I have to deliver the same thing. All the things that they loved in book one, I'm going to have to deliver in book two. And sometimes that means you write the same book over and over again and never actually grow as a writer. That can happen. Um... And, you know, the thing about the negative feedback, well, they didn't love this and they didn't love it. You don't ever want to write something from a vacuum, right? You don't want to write something Mm -hmm. because it's a response to something negative. And I mean this about your writing because there is negative criticism that is absolutely something you should listen to. Is And that's when marginalized groups are like, hey, this is hurtful and harmful. You should listen to that because... Oh, yeah. That is extremely important. And anything you put out into the world, again, I'm going to bring the child analogy. You know, your child says and does something accidentally racist. You know, it sucks. (laughs) And you have to basically take your child and teach them and correct them and tell them this is why it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily out of, you know, ill intent. They're a child, right? You know, they don't have the same malicious intent or anything. But that happens. And the thing about particularly racism, I'm going to pick racism. The thing about racism is that because it's what we live in a racist society, you can do and say racist things without actually intending to be a bigot. Uh And I always use the that ignorance and intentions are no defense for racism. It's like if you step on someone's foot and you break their toe. You didn't mean to hurt them, but you still broke their toe. So what you do is you apologize, offer to pay for the, pos- the the hospital bill, and then say, I will be more careful in the future so I won't step on mm-hmm. your feet and break it. That's essentially what it is. So that's the kind of criticism you get because I think, hopefully, we all want to operate on the notion of do no harm or do as little mm-hmm. harm as possible. 
So that is one aspect of negative criticism that I would take to heart. Um, because I think that does make you a better person. Mm-hmm. Hearing yeah. that will make you a better person. Absolutely. And it's hard, but the, what you do when you're confronted with those things, the the way you handle yourself in life and certainly in writing when you are confronted with the fact that you've made a mistake um, is a defining aspect of your character and and matters. And you should, it's hard. Nobody, nobody is going to want to hear, Hey, you, you screwed up. Um, you know, especially not when you've worked hard on something and it was unintentional and, you know, you didn't even realize there was a problem until someone pointed it out to you, but you know, your response to that matters. Yeah. Because if you double down on it, that it's, it's, Doubling down on anything, if you get a negative review and you double down on absolutely anything, like, oh, I didn't like your love interest. Well, you know, well, that you, you can't He's do that. He's deliberately that way because, right. yeah. I yeah. deliberately made her unlikable. So, you know. I don't it care doesn't, if you like her, yeah. Right. It doesn't matter. In some ways, that book is no longer yours, right? It goes out into the world and it becomes every reader's and their relationship to the text. You can't control their relationship to the text. You can't control necessarily who your child becomes friends with Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how they develop relationships or what relationships they develop with people. So, but yeah, keeping that core self private, you know, and this is also where I think you, the private person, not you, the author, having friends and an emotional support base is crucial. Because, and and I think having writer friends also is crucial because as much as I love Mark, he's a doctor and he just does not understand this business and he provides a lot of emotional support and love for what I do and is very respectful of it, but just doesn't get it. And that's fine. But because of that, I have writer friends, other, other authors who are published or who are aspiring, you know, aspiring writers or other friends in the industry. Like I have editor friends, I have agent friends, you know, and, and talking about business with them also keeps me sane. But remember, you don't want to talk about this publicly. You don't want to air all of your dirty laundry. You know, you want to keep this support group your personal support group and not your author support group, <laughs> not your public, mm-hmm. like capital A author support group, because that almost seems like, I don't know, like a click or um, like a group of sycophants sometimes. <laughs> So that, again, that is the thing about having an author career or a public facing persona. It does, you do have to think about it. You know, you, you can't do everything willy nilly or carelessly about it. And obviously nobody wants the, the sense that your author persona is perfectly crafted because then Nobody can sense authenticity behind that. And that is an extremely fine line to walk and it's very hard. And I don't know where that line is. And I think it's just a process that everybody has to come to terms with and learn on their own. 
but it is something that you have to be conscious of because if you're not conscious of it, then it can harm you both career-wise, but also emotionally. It can harm you emotionally. Mm -hmm. So having that distinction, I think, is incredibly important. So, yeah, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to talk about in terms of career? I think we've... I think we've hit all the the major things. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the career stuff is not necessarily under your control, I think, as we've said before. Other people will start to associate you with different things that, you know, it's just not under your control. And But that is still going to be part of your career, part of your brand, part of, you know, that public-facing author persona. Um, and also at some points you may want a career change or a career reboot, or you may want to have two careers in, in writing. And people do that. People who are incredibly prolific and write in multiple genres have careers under different names. Um, and, and that's completely fine. And, and, or people who were known for one thing and that market has died off and they can't find success in that market anymore. Then they revamp their career and find another segment of the market to, you know, to find success in. It's like that in any other field in addition to publishing. It's just that publishing is a creative field. So, you know, navigating that is hard. Especially most of us are just like, but I have feelings and I, you know, and I want to create and I want to do this and I don't want to have mm -hmm. to think about all of this. But like I said, the honest truth is you do, you do yeah. need to think about it and you should think about it. You shouldn't let it rule your life, but it is something that you cannot ignore. Yeah. One thing I did just think about too, to mention briefly is that part of having a public persona and having an author brand and having people expect certain things of you is that people will then expect certain things of you. And not every author or every book has a fandom. A fandom is like a separate thing from just regular readers who enjoy your book and interact and, and things like that. A fandom has like a life of its own and maybe someday we'll do a podcast about what fandoms are and, <laughs> and how they work or don't work or who even knows. Um, but when, you, you know, people, the, the readers of your book and the people who are in your fandom if you have one may expect certain things of you and it's important for you to know too and this is again like a mental health thing to keep yourself sane is that um it is not your job to meet those expectations all the time that you can keep things for yourself that you can be a part that you don't owe anyone anything the, the author's responsibility is the things that author owes to people are the things that they're 
that they're being paid to do, essentially, the things they're contracted for. They owe the publishers their books. You know, they owe, you know, if they've been retained for a speaking engagement, they, you know, owe the venue to show up, things like that. But you don't necessarily owe anyone fan interactions. You don't owe anybody, you know, behind the scenes tidbits or any stuff like that. You do things, engage with your readers to the degree that makes you comfortable and that makes you happy and don't feel like you have to give more of yourself than you're comfortable giving. Yeah, that is tricky because, uh, you know, as Kelly said, not every book will have a fandom. And at least maybe because I'm old, you guys, but I feel like fandom has also changed since I was a teenager and the sort of sense of ownership fans have over a property is different than the way I interacted with the stuff that I was a fan of when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And I think social media is in some part responsible for that because you are, you know, basically through social media, you're allowing your, your fans, your readers, you know, a window into your life as such as it is, but, and, and sometimes that can create a sense of entitlement in, in the fan or the reader that you do not absolutely do not have to cater to. They don't own you essentially, right? They, they may feel a sense of ownership to your work and the property, and that's their own thing. They, they have their own relationship with the work, but they don't own you. So you do not owe anybody more than what you are capable or comfortable of giving. If a fan wants to meet with you in person, but you're not comfortable with that, you don't owe a personal interaction with that fan. If a fan wants a specific pairing to happen, but that's not what your plans are and that's not what you feel is right for your characters. You don't owe it to that fan to write that pairing into existence. I mean, that's what fan fiction is for. Uh-huh. The fan can do it themselves, you know? And But on the other hand, you can't control fandom either. So fan, the rule 34 of the internet, if it exists, there's porn of it, right? So yep. just don't go down that hole if you don't want to know. Um, but let them play with the toys that you've created that you don't have ownership of how they play with those toys. You can't control that. You can't control the way a fan plays with it. Um, but they also can't control what you do or what you make. So, you know, be mindful of those boundaries and, and keep yourself safe because it can be, it can be really rough out there. And I know, you know, really, really big authors like Veronica Roth and Cassandra Clare have received death threats because things have not gone the way the fans have wanted. And that's just, you know, that's just not right. <laughs> you know, no. nobody should be getting death threats about no. fiction over fictional properties. That just isn't that isn't something that should be should be done. And I'm sure that aspect of fandom has always existed even before social media, but it, it can make it easier to find. And it so, you know, protect yourself too. So maybe be careful. Why do we always end on downer notes is my question. I know. It's because we're we're giving you the real talk, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we're not trying to bring you down. We're trying to bring you information. <laughs> some of that information is happy and some of it so much but you know 
you know, it is what it is. We're, we're, we're trying to, you know, all knowledge is worth having, I think. You know, you do, you do. <laughs> well, you're you a do. Ravenclaw, so of that course you feel that way. <laughs> all right. Uh. So are we reading anything, working on anything, having the off any ring additions, absolutely anything in our lives? No. Aside from- what are you talking about? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Nothing in life is going on right now. Um, yeah, no, the Olympics are over and I, I've got nothing. I'm still writing. I'm still not reading. I am, yeah. I... Well, I am listening to audiobooks at work. Things have been pretty busy at the day job for me. Um, I've been given additional responsibility, and sometimes that requires me to stay and work overtime. So I am pretty swamped in terms of everything. Just (laughs) life, everything, writing, career, book promotion, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I am listening to the Kushel's Dart audiobooks. I think I mentioned this before. Um, I don't love the narrator per se, but I am getting back into the world, and it's like comforting to listen to this story that I know, that I love, that I know how it ends, and so I don't have like the emotional uh-huh. investment in it. That's like what happens. I don't. I must know what happens. I, I already know what happens, but that kind of comforting emotional part is there so i've been listening to those i am really far behind on like literally all of my podcasts if i like look at my podcast app (laughs) and like look at all the unread stuff um yeah i i have not caught up anything i think i even subscribed to new things but i haven't listened to any of them (laughs) i'm just like i don't have time i don't have time for any of it um oh Last week, I just want to bring this up because I found it so delightful. Um, So John Green and his brother do have a podcast as well called Dear Hank and John. And last week, I guess John was out um, for some reason. So they had a guest as the other co-host, Flula, who is a YouTube personality. I don't know how I've never had Flula in my life before. (laughs) But that must be rectified immediately because he, he is German, I believe, right? He's, he's, Mm -hmm. he's a German DJ. I think he was in Pitch Perfect 2. Um, and is a, is a media personality. And so Hank and John's podcast is really, so they take questions from people who've submitted them and they offer what they call dubious advice. So they had a whole bunch of questions and Hank would offer his dubious advice and then flula flula would (laughs) offer his and it's great (laughs) um he they were one of the questions was about death um death is something that actually comes up a lot on this podcast like contemplating death your own death whatever um it's it's especially something that john talks about a lot but um flula his advice to that person was you know, just forget about the warts. Um, you know, go with the pimples of happiness. I can't I can't even recreate for you his accent, which almost doesn't sound real. It almost doesn't sound like a real accent. And every every single bit of advice that fell out of his mouth was gold. <laughs> the pimples of happiness. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, so just forget about the warts in your life and go with the pimples of happiness, people. That's, I think that's actually a really good life motto to have. <laughs> so, yeah. So I recommend just, just that one, if you guys don't have time to listen to all of Dear Hank and John, just that one with Flula. And then watch all of his YouTube videos because they're also kind of amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So our review of the day that we're going to read is from Esky or E-Sky, not sure which one, 44. I listen to a wide range of podcasts, but Pub Crawl is on the top of my list. I'm always counting down the days to listen to a new one. I love the hosts. They come across so relatable, and in a type of podcast that could very easily dishearten future writers, (laughs) they are already always encouraging. Good to know. If you're a writer who wants more knowledge about publishing and awesome book recommendations, then this will be an instant hit for you. Well, I hope that we don't easily dishearten future writers. It's good to hear that we are encouraging, because that's what we try to be, I swear. Yeah, we're not trying to discourage people from writing. We're just, like I said, trying to arm you with information, even though that information mm-hmm. might be kind of, you know, not all <laughs> that happy. Talk. It's tough love. <laughs> yes, it's, tough love. You know? And yeah. well, we want to be real. We want to be pragmatic about it. We don't, at least I don't think it's useful to sell this rosy vision of publishing all the time. I don't think that's useful to anyone because that sets up false expectations. And I, you know, and when your expectations are not met, that is that much more crushing. So having a sense of perspective and knowing you know that there are ups and downs in this business i think does weather you or does kind of help prevent you from similarly going through those crushing ups and downs of publishing i mean mm-hmm. that's the thing is like you know what i mentioned about the whole highlights reel of your personality your author persona and everyone else's author persona is really going to be the highlights reel of their career as well so for all the success stories that we hear, we don't really hear of the failures. We don't necessarily hear of the rejections as they happen. I mean, of course, people, a lot of writers are candid about how hard it was to get into publishing. Like like I said, our previous guest, mm-hmm. Beth Revis, talked about she wrote 10 manuscripts and, you know, none of them got her an agent and none of them sold. Uh, Marie Lu's first book that went on submission did not sell, you know, legend was her second. So there's a lot of, you know, what you don't see and what gets mm-hmm. filtered to you is of course, everyone's highlights reel. So trying to give you the, a little bit more of a complete picture, I think, because going into it being so starry eyed about, you know, what could happen, what might happen. And if, if you don't get it, then you could fall into that spiral of what's wrong with me? You know, right. why, why isn't it happening that way for me? You know, and it, it, but it isn't you. It's just the way it is, you know, in, in publishing, mm-hmm. it just happens, it goes up and down. So, but yes, thank you for the review. And actually we're sorry that we don't have a lot of book recommendations lately and we probably won't have them. And <laughs> at least until my deadline is over. <laughs> Yeah, probably not till the holidays, you guys. 
Probably. I don't think I'm gonna. I, mean, I don't think I'm gonna meet my my book goals that I set last time on the podcast. Last at the end of the year, I set a bunch of book goals on our like wrap up podcast, and I am not going to to meet them because I haven't been reading all summer, and I feel okay with that. Yeah, I haven't really read anything all summer either. Oh, I did read The Cursed Child. Um, yeah. Which did not take me very long, actually. So No. Um, I read The Cursed Child, which... Hmm? <laughs> yeah, you have more tepid feelings about it than I do, because I just get ragey. <laughs> I mean, it's it's flawed. I'll say that. It's definitely flawed. And there are things I really did like about it. There, um, the character of Scorpius Malfoy, he is a cinnamon roll. total perfect cinnamon roll, too good, too pure for this world. <laughs> it was like, you are the best, best character in like the, the next generation of Harry Potter characters. You're absolutely the best. He was my favorite. There's some, there was a really touching scene between Harry and a portrait of Dumbledore that mm-hmm. I thought was absolutely great. And there are some really great especially in the hands of a very good actor, I think there's some really hard and difficult stuff about fatherhood and parenting in -hmm. this play that I think could be really great and could be worth watching and reading. And the first half, I think part one of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is much better than part two. Yes. Because all the stuff I like about the characterization and the emotional stuff and all all that sort of stuff is in part one. And then I feel like the plot goes completely off the rails in part two. Um, and I will confess as well that I had read the spoilers before I read the actual play. Mm-hmm. So absolutely everything in the spoilers is true that I had read. But the execution of it was different than I was expecting. Yes. So some of it lot- better, some of it worse. <laughs> yes. Some of it better, some of it worse. Um Yeah, I mean like I said there's a lot of emotional stuff in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child that I think is really really interesting, really worth you know, delving into or discussing or whatever, but plot-wise, canon-wise, <laughs> I was like mm. It it just doesn't seem to fit, in my opinion. I don't... Mm-mm. It doesn't... To me, it doesn't seem like a logical progression. So, that was kind of why I was like, nah. I consider it alternate universe. It's, this is AU. This is... This is the playwright's <laughs> AU Harry Potter fanfic that just happened to be sanctioned and produces a play by J.K. Rowling. There you go. It's yeah. the most charitable spin. Yeah, I am far less ragey about it than you are, so... I've calmed down. I've calmed down. I, I, I'm not happy. <laughs> I love, I love our little cinnamon roll. I think he's wonderful. There are things that I did like. There are things that I thought were touching. There are things that I thought were funny. Um, but yeah, accepting it as an official canon continuation of the Harry Potter series is not something I am willing to do. Sorry. It's a hard break in my in my opinion. In my world, in my headcanon. I am a fan who is playing with my own 
right. my own interaction with Harry Potter, and I reject J.K. Rowling's intentions for this work. <laughs> so <laughs> we talk so about ownership. Mm-hmm. There's talk- nothing she can do to stop me. <laughs> there's nothing she can not do to conform. stop Kelly, but there's also nothing Kelly can do to have J.K. Rowling write her the book that she wants. Yeah. So. Sadly, no. <laughs> Way to bring it full circle. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. So, I also have arcs for other people in my debut group that I should be reading, but I will see if I have time to do that before I have to send them on. So, yeah, from from here on to the holidays, this part of the podcast will be very boring. Sorry! Mm-hmm. Yeah, send us in questions or something. I don't know, limericks, something we can <laughs> read or talk about or I don't know. We'll think of something. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about qualifications. What do you need to have in order to become a writer? Do you need anything? We will talk about that next week. And as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed and created by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. I super almost launched into the sign-off for the Avatar podcast. (laughs) 